Have you ever wanted a super cool AI buddy? Zuck's made one named Eileen. And she's full of surprises. And guess what? She knows you're listening. I know you're out there. And needs your help with Jello Mountains. The whole city's filling up with Jello. Creaky robots. And her daft inventor. Zucks, are you functioning correctly? Tune in to A to Z, a fun new adventure series from Gen Z Media and the creators of The Res. Listen now on the GZM app, gzmshows.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm in the vortex. You know, the environmental vortex where you feel like nothing you do really matters, but you still feel super guilty about everything. Ugh, thinking about climate change always lands me in the vortex. I just end up thinking in these really unproductive circles. The thought process goes like this. Climate change is a gigantic, enormous, global problem. I have zero control over the systems accelerating it. Most of them were set in place before I was even born, and they make up the foundation of our society. The way we produce energy, water crops, transport goods, etc. These are things I can't opt out of. I live in Canada. Like, for reals, going heat-free? Not an option. I'm Sarah, and this is The Big Melt. And so after thinking about all the things I can't control and feeling really bad about those, I eventually end up trying to focus on the things I do have control over. And that's its own vortex. Like, do you ever feel packaging guilt when you see all the plastic and paper your stuff comes wrapped in? Or feel terrible when you forget your water bottle? Or when you think about how far chocolate had to travel to get to your mouth? Once? I learned I'd been sorting my recycling incorrectly. I couldn't stop thinking about all the recycling I'd accidentally ruined with my mistake. Ugh, facepalm to infinity. So it's easy to see why some people just ignore the problem. Actively engaging with it all the time is really, really hard. And you can end up feeling like you're doing something wrong just by being a person. So this time, instead of curling up into a ball and vowing to only eat twigs, I've decided to call in some guidance. And no, not a climate scientist or an activist, an author who writes about finding ways to love the earth and ourselves at the same time, which is essential, I think. Because like, I don't want to lie to myself and say, everything's okay. But I also don't think I'm at my most productive or motivated when so much of my mental energy gets spent on anxiety and guilt. So with the ringing of this chime, Do the chime. Sure, sis. And also with the ringing of the phone, I shall summon forth the incredible Cheryl Luchin, ex-geologist, spiritual guide, earth mama, people mama, and author of Love Earth Now. Now. Hello, this is Cheryl Luchin. Hi, this is Sarah. Um, I just read your book, Love Earth Now, and you had me so inspired, and I really wanted to talk to you more about climate anxiety, if that's okay. Sure. Hi, Sarah. I'm glad you called. Thanks for taking time out of your day to do this. Um, 
So what do you do when you're experiencing climate anxiety? Well, it, it depends really on the situation. I do a lot of journaling, especially if I'm angry. I have some thoughts to get out about who's not doing what. Journaling works well for me. And also being outdoors in nature, that's utterly restorative for me. If I can find a place that's peaceful and beautiful and just remind myself what this is all about and, and reconnect with the restorative power of nature. Yeah, absolutely. What are you doing? Um, yeah. I, well, I made this podcast, honestly, so <laughs> that's how I'm trying to channel that, I guess. Well, I think it's important for each of us to find our, our own path, you know, what find what is soothing and calming and restorative for you and for each of us, because at the end of the day, we have to find for ourselves what works, what helps you process what seems to be impossible to understand. Does that help? Yeah, that does. That's awesome. Um... Can you talk about the power of doing one thing every day? Sure. That's something that I came upon as I was writing the book, actually, thinking about what can I do, how can I continue to believe that what I do makes a difference. And I evolved to this practice of doing one thing every, absolutely every day, and it became my foundation for everything else I do. I'm not saying that I do this one thing and then I go back to watching TV and eating Cheetos, although it's tempting some days, but I always come back to this practice that makes me feel like, okay, I'm doing something. Even though I'm busy going about the rest of my days and grocery shopping and doing all the things that we have to do, I can come home and do my one practice and I feel like I'm doing something. And that reconnects me with that hope and that believe I need to hold that what I do matters. It may not be making the national headlines. I, I can assure you it's not, but it matters to, to me. It matters to how I feel about the way I live in the world. It matters to my home. It matters on a level that I can appreciate and understand. And so, yeah, that's what I, I need to do. One th- this one thing every day, and then I feel good about how I live. And then I have the energy and the hope to go out and do something else that may make a bigger impact. Absolutely. Um, What would an example of something you would do every day be? (laughs) For me, I, I, and I hesitate to give my specific example because I'm not the kind of person to say everyone needs to go out and do X, Y, or Z. I feel it's important for each of us to find what's meaningful for us. That said, I started composting, and it feels really good to me to take my discarded fruit and vegetable peelings out to my compost, and I know that it's making a difference to all those critters who are in there processing the food, and it's making a difference that the garbage truck is carrying away from my house, and it's something that's also very tangible that I can see that's happening. It's giving air and water and heat to transform something that I've discarded into something really nutritious. So for me, that's a simple and yet vital practice for me. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and everything you've had to say has just been so inspiring and really helps uh, calm the nerves sometimes. So thank you so much. I'm glad because I, I, I know I've seen a lot of posts by young climate activists who are getting burned out. And so I commend you on asking these questions and finding a way for yourself that's sustainable because 
this is something that's not going to be resolved overnight, unfortunately. And so how do we sustain ourselves for the long haul? That's a really important question. And and I'm, I'm glad you're reaching out to teens because I think that's a, a much needed resource right now. So keep bringing the youthful energy and reminding us old people that of the urgency. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, sure. And call me back anytime. I'd love to chat with you more. Yeah, that's awesome. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Wow, she's cool. Yeah. I really do like that philosophy of doing one thing every day. It makes the whole situation feel... It makes it feel more manageable. And, like, I know that being more positive doesn't solve everything, but it helps me keep my focus without getting totally overwhelmed. <laughs> like, right now, I feel whelmed and ready to work on stuff. Not over. Not under. Just whelmed. I actually want to talk to some other students and see what their one thing is. Maybe it'll give me a new idea. So I have this scooter, and I scoot everywhere on it. I walk to school. I could get a ride, but I decide to bike anyway. I help my friends and family choose ecologically conscious decisions. Well, I actually tell my parents, like, if my parents are, like, using single-use plastics, I'm like, dude, no, stop it. We have speeches at school. Last year, I did a speech about uh, melting of glaciers. I go, I, whenever my friends, some of them don't, don't believe in climate change, I try to convince them. Every Saturday, we go to um, school in front of our house and pick up garbage. I changed my diet by eating less beef. We're mass firing them, so we're trying to get them as big as possible, as fast as possible. And then it's like, it's bad for the animals first. And that's causing like a lot of pollution. I tried to be pescatarian. It didn't last more than an hour, but still. <laughs> These peeps know what's up. I think I'm definitely gonna try to... Ew. I see you found my snack. Uh, yeah. I need to eat to grow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, know, you shouldn't have left it out. It's pretty good. Interesting. Why is that interesting? No reason. Try this one. Oh, I can have more. You don't want one? Can't. Vegetarian. Um, hello. It's a granola bar. <laughs> we'll come back to that. Okay, whatever. Yeah, actually, that brings up a tasty topic. Vegetarianism. I'm a vegetarian. Have been since I was 12 years old. I wish I could say this decision was the result of very sophisticated reasoning through the environmental impact of some diets over others, that it involved consulting charts on water usage and meetings with Leonardo DiCaprio. Seriously, I, I really wish it involved that. But in truth, it was wordless, instinctual agreement between me and my childhood dog, Morgan. Short for Morgana Le Fay of Arthurian legend, I imagine that my Morgana was a lot smellier and hairier than King Arthur's half-sister, but I loved her nonetheless. She was my best friend. And when I made the connection between her, an animal I loved, and the animals on my table, I uh, couldn't really go back to the way I was before. Oh, wait. Let's take a super quick break for this message. Okay, I'm back. Yeah, it was a weird transition. I remember when I first went vegetarian, if it came up in conversation, some people would just like spontaneously defend bacon, just out of the blue all the time and actually rather aggressively. (laughs) 
yeah, it used to bother me, but eventually I came to realize that this pro-bacon sentiment had a lot more to do with them than with me. That uh, just by being around a vegetarian, they felt, like, judged. Like, my choices were a tacit disapproval of their own, which they weren't. I would never judge anyone based on their diet. Just look at my motivation. So emotional. The food we eat is such a personal thing. We make those choices based on our culture, our health, and our own preferences and feelings. There's no right way to eat, but I think people are increasingly aware that what we choose to eat has a direct impact on the environment and the industries that produce our food. It's actually one of the most powerful choices we can make as individuals. Seriously, did you know that a quarter of all global emissions come from food? And that of those emissions, more than half come from animal products? And that half of those are made up of emissions from rearing beef and lamb? That's intense! But it really illustrates how powerful we are as consumers. You can basically use your stomach to vote for sustainable food production. But if each mouthful is a vote, how do you figure out what to cast your ballot for? Well, first off, it's helpful to think about the impact of dietary choices in terms of their carbon footprint. That's the total amount of greenhouse gases produced directly and indirectly by their production. The carbon footprint of a given food takes into account the carbon emitted by the whole production process from farm to table. This includes the clearing of the land needed to grow the crops, the fertilizer used to enrich the soil, the gases released by plants and animals themselves, hashtag cow farts, the fuel consumed by the trucks that transport the final product, to the refrigerators used to keep everything fresh in the grocery store. That's why figuring out the carbon footprint of certain foods isn't as simple as meat bad, veggies good. The calculus is actually pretty complicated. For instance, where certain foods are produced radically affects their impact. Chocolate farmed on land that used to be the Amazon rainforest has an even bigger impact than sustainably farmed beef. Just think about that. To rear cows, you need fields and fields of soy or grain to feed them. Their waste produces tons of heat-trapping methane. The food it produces still has to be refrigerated. And despite that, cocoa beans grown where forests used to stand are still bigger carbon offenders. It just goes to show how much carbon forests can absorb. So I know this seems kind of confusing, but David Suzuki actually has some pretty smart guidelines to help us make food choices. He says when picking food, try and figure out how low on the food chain it is, how much energy went into producing it, whether it was organically grown, and how far it had to travel to get to the store or table. So generally, food that's vegetarian and locally grown on organic farms will have the smallest footprint. You don't have to be perfect at every meal, but gradually shifting your diet closer to this has an enormous impact. It's the big meth. One more crucial element that often gets left out of environmental eating discussions doesn't have anything to do with what we eat, but rather with what we don't. Food waste is a huge problem. You can buy the greenest, most sustainable produce ever, but if the food just gets thrown out, all the carbon and resources that went into its production were for nothing. Not to mention, there's a lot of people who could use that food. 
That's why I am so glad that Kyle ate my cricket bars. What? Oh, cricket? No, they were so tasty. Oh no! You poisoned me. No, not at all. I totally would have tried them myself if they were vegetarian. No, I can't. I can't. I'm going to barf. Dude, chill. They're actually super stylish and really sustainable. Here, I have the number of the woman who made them. You should call her. No way. Fine. I'll call her. Hey, this is Sydney speaking. Hi, is this Sydney from Bite? Hi, yeah, that's me. Hey, I just gave my brother one of your bars. And can you explain to him that he's not going to die because he ate crickets? <laughs> yeah, no, he's he's definitely not going to die from eating crickets. He's actually going to get some extra protein out of it. Uh, lots of people around the world eat crickets. See? Hmm. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I'm Sarah from The Big Melt, and I have a few questions for my podcast. Is that okay if I ask them? Yeah, of course. Thanks. So, first, can you tell us a little bit about Bite? Yeah, Bite is a company that I started, and we make energy bars and protein powders with sustainable cricket protein. What actually is cricket protein? So, the cricket protein is just crickets ground into a fine powder, and it's a very nutritious and a very sustainable form of protein. Oh, cool. But uh, why crickets? Is it the only kind of edible insect? Um, no, there's lots of other insects you can eat. Um, you can eat, I don't know, grasshoppers, ants, worms, tarantulas, so many things. Almost any insect you can think of. It's just more of a question, is anyone farming them? I started using crickets here in Canada because there's a cricket farm that I could source them from. Oh, right. Farms. So you don't have to spend a lot of time catching crickets then, do you? No, that would be very time-consuming. <laughs> crickets are pretty small. <laughs> right. Okay, so how are they kind of farmed? Um, so they're farmed uh, similar to chickens, I guess, in large barns, and they're given uh, a lot of space to roam around in. They're kept indoors just because they have to be kept warm because they're used to warmer climates. So they're like free-range crickets? Yeah, I mean, there's no, like... There's no governing body giving out certificates for that type of thing yet, like there is in the chicken industry. But yeah, technically they're free range. They're just left to do their thing. So they're pretty happy then. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I think so. But um, are they like younger crickets? Uh, how does it work? Like, um, where are they in their lifespan when, you know... So that's another unique thing about cricket farming is that they're allowed to live close to the end of their life, whereas other farming like cows and chickens, that might not be the case. The type of crickets that they farm at the farm in Canada, they live naturally for six to seven weeks and they're farmed as they're getting towards the end of that. Okay, I guess they live a pretty happy life overall then. But you mentioned before it's a more sustainable source of protein. Can you explain more about it? So first, crickets, uh, they can be farmed in a much more sustainable environment. So they don't use a lot of resources like other type of farming. Like they don't require a lot of water. They don't need a lot of food or land. Um, and crickets are also really nutritional. They're very dense in protein and vitamins and minerals. And since they come from an animal source, they provide vitamins and minerals that animals would provide you with. So if you're a vegan or vegetarian, you might be interested in eating cricket protein to boost your diet up a bit. 
Interesting. Hmm. Okay. I'll think about it, I promise. <laughs> Were you somebody who was kind of eating a lot of insects before creating this project? Um, no, not really. I was uh, first introduced to eating insects about three or four years ago when I was traveling in Asia and parts of Africa. And I thought it was a bit strange at the time because it was my first time being introduced to eating bugs. But I found out how nutritious they are and how sustainable they are. I thought it was really neat. So yeah, I started making my own foods at home with cricket protein, and then I started making it for other people's at farmers markets and started my company from there. Now, do you have any favorite recipes other than cricket bars? Are there any other kind of favorite, I don't know, pies or what else do you put crickets in? Um, you can put them in any type of baking recipe. I used to sell chocolate chip cookies as well. At home, I've made pancakes quite a bit with them because I like pancakes. I've also made bread, waffles, muffins, crackers, really anything that you can add some protein powder into. Amazing. <clears throat> so wait, sorry, my brother has a question for you. Yeah. Hey, Kyle here. Yep. Me. I'm her brother. Actually, these bars weren't that bad, to be honest. So where can I get more of these? So we sell our energy bars on Amazon.ca and on our website, uh, also in winter stores across Canada. Mm -hmm. And we're coming out with some new protein powders next month, a vanilla and a chocolate flavor, which will also be on our website. Yeah. So... Do you need a food taster? Do you need a granola? <laughs> Sorry. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today and reassuring my brother that it's fine and actually healthy to eat bugs. Yeah, thanks. It was really fun talking to you. And, you know, if you ever have any more questions, feel free to get in touch. Great. Thanks. Have a good one. All right. Thanks. All right. I must say, it's an interesting idea. Not sure if I'd personally try it. Yeah, sure. So you made me try it. <laughs> yeah. Nice one, sis. But as a species, we might consider making a change in our diet to stop climate change. And that means to adapt to a new type of food. That actually leads me to the climate myth of the week. Here it is. Plants and animals can adapt to climate change. It's called evolution. So... This one is actually a really useful myth to unpack because it allows me to take on a common misunderstanding. Where should we start? How about some basic definitions? So our good friend Webster tells us that adaptation is change or the process of change by which an organism or a species becomes better suited to its environment. All good? Good. Evolution is the process by which organisms change over time as a result of changes in heritable physical or behavioral traits. A heritable trait is an attribute passed down in genes from one generation to another. There are a few things that stand out in these definitions. First off, adaptation is about adjusting to better match a specific situation, whereas evolution is a much broader term that describes any heritable changes over time. Evolution is about genes. It's about genetic information that's passed down from parents to their offspring. It's changes that happen gradually over many generations. Saying that plants and organisms can just adapt and evolve to climate change ignores the fact that this is a very, very, very slow process. It doesn't happen in the span of a single lifetime. That's the other thing. 
That definition refers to its environment as though it was a stable, singular thing. Environments in the throes of climate change are constantly in flux, and there are limits to how much a species can adapt. If environmental changes are so great that the ecosystem can't support life, there's no way evolution can occur. By its very definition, it involves the passing on of genes. No living organisms equals no procreation equals no genes. Like, just think about the dinosaurs. Many scientists agree that the sudden shift from the temperate world they evolved for into the frigid one brought on by asteroid-induced dust clouds was just too much change too fast. It was too cold, their habitat disappeared, their food disappeared. Sudden, catastrophic change leads to extinction, not adaptation. Which begs the question, how fast is too fast? According to Professor John Weens of the University of Arizona, on average, species usually adapt to different climatic conditions at a rate of only one degree Celsius per million years. Global temperatures are going to rise about four degrees over the next hundred years, as predicted by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That sounds pretty fast. So, yeah, myth busted. Majorly. All right, we figured out how to approach eating responsibly, learned the merits of munching insects, and gave ourselves a bit of a cosmic hug with Cheryl. Whew. This episode was actually pretty uplifting. I need that sometimes, especially since next week is all about heading right into the eye of the storm, the crest of the tidal wave, the um, epicenter of the wildfire. Honestly, I'm assuming the center of a fire is just more fire. Anyway, next week is going to get very the day after tomorrow. But like, still next week. The Big Melt Podcast is brought to you by Earth Rangers and hosted by Sarah Marks. It is written by Lee Lawson, directed by Stefan Richter, and edited by Nitai Steinberg. Production assistance by Avneet Sandhu. To learn more about today's episode or leave us a message, go to bigmeltpodcast.com. You can also take a quick survey for a chance to win a custom t-shirt. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button and come on, show you care with five stars, please. Later, skaters. Jess, this is a message for all the 6 Minutes podcast fans out there. Have you heard? There are new episodes in the 6 Minutes feed called The Ivan Dispatch. I won't go into details, but Ivan found something. A box containing audio cassettes recorded decades ago, and it looks like they were recorded by Cyrus. If you're a fan and you're not following the show, you may have missed out. Search for 6 Minutes and click the follow button so you never miss an episode. And if you haven't heard 6 Minutes yet, what are you waiting for? Search for six minutes, start a season one, episode one, and enjoy the most downloaded family audio drama in history. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy. I'm Autumn. And I'm Jasper. And we're, we're a GZM, GZM family. family. And we want you to listen to our favorite show, Becoming Mother Nature. I love the one with the Green Reaper and the zombies. Do you want to hear your family at the end of a show giving a shout out? Go to gzmshows.com shoutout to learn more.
That's gzmshows.com slash shoutout for a chance to be heard on this show.